beware of spoilers. There is no way to discuss this movie without spoiling it. Seeking to correct a selfish mistake, a moralistic hero brings redemption rather than justice to the villains displaced by his actions. Are you just watching episode 124, Spider-Man No Way Home? Welcome to the podcast that shares critical thinking for the entertained Christian. I'm E. Franklin. I'm Tim Martin. And I tell you, I've kind of been looking forward to this movie for quite a while. <laughs> I mean, the previews gave so much away that I thought, how are they going to surprise us? But they did so much in this movie. Yeah. I think we could probably discuss it for hours and not run out of fodder. Yeah. <laughs> They really did buried the lead. <laughs> <laughs> well, you knew they were. There was no way that they were going to give the, so much away in the trailer and not, you know, lead you yeah. falsely. <laughs> and they did the trailers in such a way that it made you think they were giving away everything. And but in reality, in reality <laughs> yeah, they were just skating along the edge. Yeah. About the only big reveal they gave away in the trailer was the fact that they had villains coming from the previous Spider-Man movies. Mm -hmm. And when yep. I say previous Spider-Man movies, I mean the previous Spider-Man movies. Exactly. <laughs> and that was the big thing, too, right? Mm -hmm. Was bringing the other Spider-Man villains into the MCU, which, you know, three years ago, four years ago... We never would have even dreamed. Yeah. 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 I mean, we were still discussing whether Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. would be canon. <laughs> well, we have to, you know, kind of talk a little bit about the production studios, because I think that plays a big part in how successful this movie was. As we have noticed in talking about some of the more recent MCU offerings, like Black Widow and... The Eternals, which we didn't podcast on. I actually haven't even seen it yet. But it seems like that the MCU and Disney as the owning producer of the MCU products has really moved over to woke culture and they're really pushing agendas in their movies. And the thing about the Spider-Man movies is the character is still owned by Sony. And so I think the fact that Sony still has a great deal of say and what gets put in these movies has tempered possibly the the agenda that is typically so strong in an MCU movie. That's just my personal take on this. I give Sony mm -hmm. all the credit <laughs> for the fact that yeah. this movie was not some ode to wokeism. Yeah, I never would have guessed that a Disney MCU movie would so openly embrace the Sony Spider-Man universe mm -hmm. and the fact that they've worked together, you know, to make this. And we're, we're actually seeing a lot more of this kind of working together. And I, I think it has to do with Disney bought 20th Century Fox, I think, right? That movie, the Ryan Reynolds movie, Free Guy, mm -hmm. had a lot of crossover content in it. Mm -hmm. And we're seeing a lot more of that, but we may be seeing a lot more of it because Disney is becoming more more of a monopoly. Yeah, they just they just buy everything. Thankfully, they haven't yeah. bought Sony, and I think that Sony took a great deal of power 
in the making of this movie. And I think that may have been part of the negotiations that went on behind the scenes. Cause I think it was when we talked about the previous movie, far from home, this previous Spider-Man movie, there was mm-hmm. discussion going on that that might be the last Spider-Man movie because of, you know, that the negotiations were falling flat between Sony and Disney. And there was concerns that they wouldn't be able to come across, you know, into some kind of compromise to keep Spider-Man in the MCU. And I can't help but wonder if the influence of Sony being so strong in this movie has to do with some of the outcomes from those negotiations that happened in closed rooms. So we have no idea what was being discussed, but it was, it could very well have been, you know, that Sony was like, Hey, if you're going to use our character, we have to have a great deal more say in what happens in these movies. And I think it's quite obvious they had a lot of say in this movie. That's for sure. Yeah. You know, I was actually just looking at the stock prices for Sony and Disney, Mm -hmm. and they're actually pretty close to the same value. Uh, Sony, as of the recording, Mm -hmm. January 15th, Sony is at $124.79, and Disney's at one fifty one ninety four, hmm. so they're almost on equal footing when it comes to you know value in the marketplace, right? So maybe this is a a true collaboration and not just the mouse stomping on everyone else. Yeah, yeah. I suspect that that was maybe the reason why Sony threatened to back out. You know, pull their character mm-hmm. back was that hey, you guys are making all the decisions. This is our character. We want to have more of a say. And Disney had to back down and let them have it in order to keep the character. And I think that was a good move because this is a beautiful collaboration. And one of the things that I really appreciated about the Sony uh, Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse uh, animation movie that came out a couple of years ago mm-hmm. was the way they, they played homage to their previous iterations of the character. And yeah, that was yeah. that was one of the things that you know, that made it palatable to me what happened in that movie. I I was really reluctant to see that movie because I didn't want to see a Spider-Man that wasn't Peter Parker. But I appreciated that they gave the correct... Respect? Respect, yeah. I think that's the word I'm looking for. Yeah. To the previous versions of the character so that they weren't like saying, oh, Peter Parker was a terrible way to view Spider-Man. This is, you know, the Miles Morales Mm -hmm. one is better or whatever. And you sort of expect that. Because of how politically correct and social justice, you know, everything has gone on the Disney side. Mm-hmm. Right. And Sony. Right. You know, you you expect them to be, I hesitate to say pandering to that market, but it sort of is, you know. Yeah, it is. But Miles Morales, I believe, as a Spider-Man character, has been around for a while. So it's not like yeah. they blew yeah. him up out of thin air to to make a movie. But that was one of the things that I ended up liking about that movie was the respect they paid to the previous movies. They actually captured some of the iconic scenes from the other Spider-Man movies in the animation. Mm -hmm. And so when they did that kind of thing in this movie, it made me even happier because not only were they tipping the hat to them, they actually brought them into the movie. And that just, I mean, it it like hit, it checked all the boxes for the Spider-Man fangirl. (laughs) Yeah. And you know, when it was Garfield, yeah, Garfield was the first one to come in. Mm -hmm. And when he pulled his mask off, 
there was a cheer, a literal cheer in the audience <laughs> of the theater that I was in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I, I was among them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I loved the way they played off of, you know, that Toby Maguire's Spider-Man had made the webbing in his own body instead of having the, <laughs> yeah. the webcasters. And they, they actually took time in the movie to mock that because that was one of the things that, you know, the purest fans, when the, when the Tobey Maguire movies came out, was like, where, you know, why isn't he have his web shooters? Why is he making it in his own body? That's so stupid. And they fixed it when they did the amazing Spider-Man with Garfield, but they went ahead and played off of that in this movie. I thought it was really funny. Yeah. And then I just, you know, the fact that Tobey Maguire is a lot older and wiser, I mean, as an actor, than he was when he played Spider-Man. I mean, this was, what, 20 years yeah. ago? Uh, yeah, actually, it was 20 years ago, yeah. t- 2002. Yeah, that uh, I love the, the older and wiser Spider-Man that he played. That actually felt a little bit like how they portrayed Parker in um, Spider-Verse 2 mm-hmm. to me. Yes. And I, I liked that time span, too. Yeah, yeah. So I, I just, all of that, I mean, it just ticked all the boxes. It just made me so happy. I was like... Uh, and and the fact that they don't even come in until a good halfway through the movie, you meet all of the villains before you meet the other two Spider-Man. <laughs> oh, hey, before we continue, though, let's talk about the music. Uh, Michael, uh, I hate his last name. Guacchino? Giacchino? Giacchino? I bet Google knows how to pronounce it. Yeah. Giacchino. Giacchino. He actually tweeted it at one point. Pronunciation uh, of my name is Ju Keen O. Ju Keen O. Okay. Huh. That's interesting. It's not how you would say it in Italian, that's for sure. No. <laughs> so anyway, he is the composer of Spider-Man. I think he's done all three movies of these Spider-Mans, I should say. The MCU Spider-Mans. Pretty sure he's done all three. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. You know, it carries through the music. It's It fits the movie as always and they're the themes that we've grown used to so it's like hearing them again in the same context is good and I don't think it was a spectacular soundtrack but it wasn't horrible either and it will be something that I will enjoy playing for you all here He is he is so prolific. I know. He, well, he does a lot of the Disney stuff. So you, we just we end up talking about Disney so often that we end up talking about his music a lot. But I will say, if you haven't gone and looked up the soundtrack for this, like in Amazon or YouTube, you need to go read the track titles for the soundtrack because they are absolutely hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> And I'll leave that for you to go do yourself because you'll get you'll be tickled. They're fun. Yeah. So we had all of the this fan service, you know, to all of us Spider fans, <laughs> Spidey fans. <laughs> uh, you know, a couple decades of Spidey fans. 
Yeah, no kidding. And, you know, it's it's interesting that there were some holes in the MCU's version of Spider-Man that kind of nagged at me. You know, he jumped into the scene, literally, in Captain America Civil War. And, of course, everybody cheered because suddenly Spider-Man was part of the MCU. But when we watched the first movie, he's, you know, suddenly playing to Tony Stark and... And he's got the the really cool hot aunt that everybody's you know like panting for, which is a totally different yeah. character than than is classic for the Spider Man. You know, she's usually a beautiful old lady. And we didn't have any of the Uncle Ben story where Uncle Ben tragically dies and leaves you know right. Peter Parker with the sage advice of with great power comes missing, great response. Yeah, it was missing the whole normal origin. And it's been gone through all of these movies. We've never had any of it. And so right. I think a lot of, of you know, Spidey fans like me were going, I mean, you know, he's, he's a cool version. He's, he's a real teenage Spider-Man. And it's really cute and up to date. And I think if you go back and listen to our original review of the, of the first of the, of the Spider-Man movies, Homecoming, you'll hear me, you know, express some doubt about this new Spider-Man character. And some of that doubt came because there were these missing holes. They like nagged at me, like, you know, like a missing tooth. It's like, there's something here that's not here or not. There's something Mm -hmm. not here that is needed. And thankfully this movie finally plugged some of those holes for this iteration of Spider-Man. And I appreciate that, but it's kind of funny that we get like the origin at the end instead of, (laughs) The um the beginning. Yeah, it, it's almost like all three movies is the origin story of this Spider-Man. Because at the end of No Way Home, he is a blank slate. Right. Nobody, nobody... Even knows who he is. Knows who Peter Parker is. Right. And nobody knows that Spider-Man is Peter Parker. I should also, you know, add. Yeah. <laughs> so... It's like the entire thing rewrites the Spider-Man origin story for this universe's version of Spider-Man. So I liked how they sort of made that all work out Mm -hmm. and how they tied in the other two Spider-Men who both had origin stories in their movies. Right. Right. Yeah. I know McGuire did. I, I can't remember if uh, Garfield did. Yes, he did. He had the the whole, you know, bit by a spider and Uncle Ben dying and all of that. It was all in That's the, right. Yeah. Yep. So I like how they did it. it. It really felt like they put a lot more effort into overarching master plan type story. Yeah. I think it was an improvement and it and it filled those holes and they paid service to the fans they paid service to the past movies, the past iterations. They showed how it all fits together, as in the fact that there are multiverses and they're all in their own ver- universes versions of Peter Parker. Mm-hmm. So anyway, it plugged a bunch of those holes. It made me feel like I, I think you put in your initial reactions. It had all the warm and fuzzies. It was warm and fuzzy. Yeah. <laughs> so this just gave me everything that I wanted in a Spider-Man movie. Including other Spider-Men. <laughs> <laughs> now, three times the Spider-Men. Yeah. Have you seen that meme that's going around where it shows the, the cartoon of the three Spider-Men in a circle pointing at each other? And they said, kudos. Uh, 
I know the scene that it's referring to, but I, I, I don't see a lot of memes anymore. So. Yeah, now that you're off Facebook. Yeah, it's been going around yeah. saying, thank you, Marvel, for making this happen in real life or something <laughs> like that. Yeah. I really liked how I, I mentioned how they tied it all together. It fits so perfectly when you're doing woodworking and you need to make a 90 degree joint or a, a joint between two boards. One of the ways you can do it is a dovetail joint. And without a uh, a jig, you know, a, a guide to cut those joints, it can be really difficult to do it right. Mm-hmm. But when you get it done right, it feels so good. <laughs> it's like it fits so well and you're like, yay, I got it. That's sort of the way this movie felt for me. Mm-hmm. Um, I really like how they plugged some of those holes. They really just drew everything together in a way that I didn't expect. I mean, of course, everybody, there were rumors out there suggesting that they were going to introduce the other actors in the movie. But, uh, I mean, Andrew Garfield, he denied it vehemently. He, and, uh, it has come out since No Way Home's release that he found lying about whether or not he was in No Way Home to be one of the most enjoyable things that he got to do. <laughs> So it's a, I am a little concerned and and this isn't about no way home so much as it is about the state of movies today. It seems like a lot of the a lot more of them recently have had nostalgia as a focus. And no way home I think does it better than a lot of uh the movies out there, but it still has a lot of fan service in there. And I'm curious if this is a result of the hyper-connected social reality that we live in nowadays. Yeah. You know, I think about shows that get canceled and immediately there springs up online petitions to save the show. And that kind of happened with Daredevil. I know when Daredevil got canceled on Netflix that, you know, there was all these massive groups and petitions saying, not only do we want Marvel to keep Daredevil, but we want them to keep Charlie Cox as playing the character. That's a shame they didn't do that. (laughs) Oh, wait. Wait. (laughs) (laughs) It's, you know, part of me, though, is like, dude, just let it go. (laughs) This is the way it's supposed to work. I mean, they canceled Firefly. If Firefly can't make it, you know, nobody can. I don't know. I guess I I don't see it necessarily as a bad thing because I I think it's nice that the studios are sensitive to what the fans want and and I I appreciate the fact that they actually are listening. In the past, we've always been, you know, basically, you know, living with their decisions without any say. And I know that, mm-hmm. like, uh, back in the 90s, there was a TV show I watched called Roswell, which they've recently yep, I remember remade by an awful, awful version. The remake was terrible. <laughs> but the original came out, and I think it was – I was trying to remember now what network it was, whether it was CW or – Was that CW? Um, it seems like it was. But when they – after two seasons, they talked about canceling it. And all of the fans, and you know, this is the 90s. This was before social media. Yeah. All of the fans got a letter writing campaign going and sent sent the production company bottles of oh. 
the sauce that I, they put on everything. They would always put hot sauce on all, all their food. Uh, the aliens yep. did in Roswell. And so they started this letter writing campaign of sending hot sauce to the production company. And they got another half season out of the show before they canceled it. And, and so it, you know, it's nice to know they listen to us. And yeah, I appreciated, I'm probably one of the people in this room who seriously appreciated <laughs> having Matt Murdock show up in this movie. Oh yeah. Yeah. I clapped. <laughs> And I clapped again when he caught the brick. Yes, that was really cool. I was like, how did you do that? I'm a really good lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> that was a good line. Yeah. My concern about this is more, is it going to stymie the major studios putting out original content? Eh, there's nothing new or under the sun. Is- <laughs> <laughs> Are we just going to see original content be relegated to indie theaters or Mm -hmm. uh, indie studios like RJ? uh, I can't remember any of the names. RJE, I think, is one of them. So I don't want them to stop and I want them to continue doing fan service, but I, I want them to generate new stuff, too. Oh, yeah. So I'm a little concerned that it's going to that people are going to continue reboots and remakes and sequels and, that are out of place and out of time and not worth seeing, like <laughs> Matrix. <yeah. laughs> I guess that's my only – that's my real concern with it. Fan service is great. Nostalgia is great. But let's generate stuff that we can be nostalgic for in 30 years. Yeah. Well, you know, I think there is a lot of new content coming out. It's just unfortunately it gets overshadowed by – some of the, you know, the big names like Disney and Sony who bring mm-hmm. out, you know, these movies like this. But the issue that we have is that there are, you know, like, let's let's think back in like the last 10 years. We had we had the Twilight series. Well, that was probably longer than 10 years now that I think about it. <laughs> A little bit. Yeah. Yeah. We, we had the um, Divergent series that went to went to movies. These were all based on on best-selling book series. We mm-hmm. had the Hunger Games series that we're also based yep. on. So there is new content out there. And I think that the studios are always out there looking for that content that they can make the next big, you know, trilogy out of. Yeah. The next Harry Potter. The next Harry Potter. Yeah. So it's not like the, there isn't fresh content coming out, but we do have the fact that our generation, your, your yours and my generation are the ones that really embraced video media. So we were the first generation that just like our upbringings, our lives were all centered around the television. Prior to that, it was radio. You know, the generation before us, they were more in the radio world, but we really, we were the first generation to come home from, from school and watch cartoons. We were the first generation to wake up every Saturday morning to watch cartoons. Yeah. Saturday morning, Saturday, Saturday morning cartoons. We were the generation that in that first had active video games where we could actually like see characters walking around on a screen and and you know be involved in that adventure. And and so we're the generation now that are remaking movies for the next generation. And so that's why there yep. is so much nostalgia because we were the first generation that did it, that understood it, that made it culture. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I can see where you're coming from with that. And, you know, this may even be cyclical. Yeah. 
we may find that in 20 years we're seeing more content from like that is reminiscent (laughs) of the 40s yeah 40s and 50s only with uh lgbt characters because there won't be any straight characters left in in major motion pictures by that point Mm -hmm. yeah that one other thing that that really struck me in this movie was how weird Stephen Strange was. <laughs> His character just seemed completely off to me. Like, we yeah. we went through an origin story of a Doctor Strange who was so, like, completely, like in control of his his life and stuff that when things fell out of his hands, he just like went nuts. And then he found wizardry or whatever you want to call it. And, and he became a very calm, cool, in command person who could handle all of the trauma of infinity war and take it just in stride and, and be the, the rock that kind of held everybody in place through in game. And now, even if he wasn't very, kind about it yeah and and now he just like completely comes apart at the seams because a teenager comes to him for help (laughs) yeah exactly and this part was actually in the previews too with the casting of the spell and you know we look at it from our professional lives when we have a project that's handed to us one of the first things we do is we define the scope of the project right Mm -hmm. and you can't afford in, in business what's called scope creep, which is you get two thirds of the way into the project and the original requester is like, oh, and when the user hits submit, we want it to do this also. Or can you make sure to add an index to the, <laughs> you know, the, the publication right. or something like that? So we define, we take and have a a series of meetings with the requester and we define the full scope. And in this movie, and I, I understand that some of this is, you know, to compress time and, and all that. But in this movie, Peter walks in and says, Hey, can you do this? And strange says, sure. And they literally walk downstairs and strange starts casting the spell right away without asking a single question. (laughs) And then he gets angry with Peter, who is literally a child, right? for wanting to change the parameters when he realizes, oh, wait, this is happening right now. Right. As far as I'm concerned, the entire thing was Strange's fault. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there was that line- It just didn't seem in character. Yeah, it was like that line where- he says, you didn't think to go and, and challenge the decision of the MIT college b- before asking me yeah. to brainwash the entire world. It's like, did you present that as an option before you started brainwashing all the world? You're the adult in the yeah, room. exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Why do you expect the 18-year-old or the 17-year-old or however old he is to understand that th- – th- I I never thought to challenge any of my uh, rejection letters. <laughs> no. Yeah. Never never occurred to me. <laughs> I didn't think about it cuz I didn't get rejected, but I can understand the concept when you're <laughs> when you're 17 or 18 that's not something that crosses your mind because you think, "Oh, they rejected me. That means I'm not good enough. Move on to the next thing." So, they are the authority and, you know, we've been raised up until we were 18 to accept 
the authorities' you know determination. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. It just it's strange. Seems like he was more culpable than the movie made him out to be. Maybe that's going to be dealt with in in his upcoming movie because the preview at the very end of the end credits basically shows the fact that he's going to be taken to task for what the, yeah. the spells that he cast in No Way Home. So and and you know going back to my whole dovetail comment, I'm hopeful that multiverse of madness is going to dovetail into no way home and there's going to be an aha moment <laughs> where we're going to be like oh that's why or that's not even our Stephen strange or yeah. you know something like that something because that's going to fix that <laughs> we know from the preview at the end credit scene that there's actually multiple versions of dr strange in multiverse of madness mm-hmm so I'm hoping that they ha- have that same masterful weaving of story arc across multiple stories, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we'll see. Yeah. We'll, we'll have to see. When's, when's it come out? Uh, March? May? Seems like they're doing one every month now, it seems. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's for sure. At least every other month. <laughs> I think we probably beat our initial reactions to death on this and it's there is so much to talk about in this movie so we need to get you know talking about some themes and yeah. the first theme that we're going to talk about is kind of a three-parter it's like it, there's like multiple ideas under like a broader umbrella and uh i think i'll let you kick it off because um you were the one that had the initial idea so when I was taking notes and then later transcribing my notes, the theme that I was thinking about was how much of the movie is based on lies and secrets. Mm-hmm. And then you brought in the idea of the court of public opinion and how those lies and secrets actually influence the court of public opinion, mm-hmm. which gets uncomfortably close to reality. <laughs> yeah. Does it ever? <laughs> but let's stay away from reality for the moment. <laughs> I mean, the whole movie opens with that dovetailing into the end of Far From Home mm-hmm. with the introduction of J.K. Simmons as J. Jonah Jameson, J.J.J., mm-hmm. <laughs> exposing Spider-Man as a not exposing him as villain because he's always been a villain for J. Jonah Jameson <laughs> yeah. in all three of the Spider-Man universes. Right. Exposing Spider-Man's attempt to kill Mysterio, an interdimensional warrior who gave his life to protect our planet and who will no doubt go down in history as the greatest superhero of all time. And then outing Peter Parker as Spider-Man. Right. But that lie of Mysterio's because, you know, Doctored video. We know yeah. from Far From Home that, yeah, the whole thing is is completely – not only is it completely staged, but it was planned from the beginning to be completely staged. So I was thinking about how the lies drive the movie and the lies are necessary because Peter had been trying to keep his identity as, as Spider-Man a secret. And that got me wondering about, obviously, the Bible is pretty clear on lies. Right. But it got me wondering about how it is on keeping secrets. 
and I thought it would be an interesting topic to discuss. Yeah, I mean, it's not so much keeping the secret, but keeping counsel. It's like if you're trusted with something, you kind of can take it to the point of not necessarily keeping a lie or or doing secrets. But, you know, this whole concept of when somebody confesses something to you in private, you don't go blasting it in public. I mean, confidentiality more than secrets, I think, is is maybe the better way to put it. It's like when somebody tells you something in confidence. Yeah. And, you know, this whole storyline from No Way Home, where Peter goes to Doctor Strange and and asks for the spell, this is actually from the comic book series. Mm -hmm. And because of the format, they can dive into this topic a whole lot more. But they make it a big point about how it's dangerous for people to know Peter Parker's secret. So when Strange casts the spell in the the Spider-Man comics – one of the requirements of the spell is that if Spider-Man ever revealed his identity even to one person, it would cause the entire spell to unravel. Mm-hmm. So he was doing it in the comic books. He was doing it to protect those people who were close to him, like Aunt May and Mary Jane. I'm pretty sure it was Mary Jane in that, in that one. So it made sense. And – I was in the military intelligence in the army and I, I still have secrets that I have to keep mm-hmm. because there's still stuff that I was exposed to back in the nineties. <laughs> and we're talking Soviet threat era that is still classified and I'm not allowed to talk about it. Oh, really? Can you tell me some of it? <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. Let me, let me give you a little more detail. <laughs> so keeping secrets is not necessarily a sinful act. Right. What, makes it sinful and what makes it not sinful is whether or not you're doing it to glorify God. But J. Jonah Jameson, he was just doing it to generate likes Mm -hmm. in social media parlance. And he was doing it for his own glory. You see that because it takes him from like his garage or basement studio with his green screen to a full production studio with employees and everything. I mean, he literally Mm -hmm. made his career on this lie that he put out. And, you know, in the Spider-Man game on the PS4 by Insomniac Games and the the follow-up, the Miles Morales game, J. Jonah Jameson is presented the exact same way. And in every case, he's actually just insanely gullible. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's no indication that he is lying, you know, that he knows the truth and goes out of his way to present a falsehood. Mm -hmm. But what he's doing is he's embracing the information that supports his own truth, his own idea of what it should be so that he reinforces his own, you know. Boy, doesn't that sound familiar? Yeah, it does. It sounds a little too familiar, actually. Yeah. When it comes to keeping secrets, one of the verses that came to mind for me was Proverbs 25, 9 and 10. Make your case with your opponent without revealing another secret. Otherwise, the one who hears will disgrace you and you'll never live it down. (laughs) So the writer of Proverbs is advising that judicious keeping of secrets is a good thing. Right. And there's uh, Proverbs 17.9, whoever conceals an offense promotes love, but whoever gossips about it 
separates friends, which is one of my favorites because it's not saying white lies are okay. It's not saying that it's okay to say, no, that dress doesn't make you look fat. (laughs) What it's saying is that you don't need to talk out every single offense. Yeah. You don't have to spread private matters among other people. I mean, it's like my, my parents have always had the philosophy that they never speak badly of each other to other people. And that preserves a marriage. It's not that they may not think things occasionally, but they're not going to go, you know, like in in a city school group at church or something and or a fellowship and blurt out something about their significant other that is painful, hurtful and disrespectful. It's just not something you do. And that doesn't mean you have to lie about it. It's just you keep such things to yourself. (laughs) Yeah. You keep your own counsel. on Right. And and that's kind of what Proverbs twenty four twenty eight says. It says, don't testify against your neighbor without cause. Don't deceive with your lips. So just because your neighbor says something or does something that you don't like, you don't go and testify against them without a good cause to do so. I mean, let's, let's preserve some may, good it relationships. it may be completely true. Yeah. But J- Jonah Jameson, you know, he's, he's reporting all this stuff completely guilelessly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and what he's doing is he's, he's condemning Peter Parker in this court of public opinion, and it creates a whole lot of problems for him. Yeah. And this term, the court of public opinion, really came up when Matt Murdock was counseling, you know, the three of them, May and Happy and and Peter, uh, about, you know, their legal woes. (laughs) And, you know, it was interesting because to me, and and as as we've already said, I'm going to go ahead and and talk about real reality because you can't you can't yeah. discuss this without talking about what's really going on in our culture right now, because people see things doctored video or video taken out of context or words taken out of context. I mean, we've got people that are pulling you know people's Twitter accounts up from years ago and and taking things out of context and like destroying their lives over it. And then we have people like um, Nick Sandman and and Kyle Rittenhouse, young men. They're basically yeah. They actually, in reality, represent what Peter Parker represents in this movie. You know, they're young mm-hmm. men who have not even reached adulthood yet, who get caught publicly doing something that, in in some cases, I I, I don't have anything against Nick Sandman. I think what he did was was taken out of context. Oh yeah, I think he is far more the victim between the two yeah. than Kyle Rittenhouse, but Rittenhouse just made some poor choices right? that got blown all out, out of, of proportion. Yeah. 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 And and both of them have had their characters completely assassinated by the court of public opinion. And if you look into the matters of the cases, I mean, if you actually dig in, you know, you watch all the videos with, with Kyle Rittenhouse or you watch the entire video of what happened with Nick Sandman – it's like you mm-hmm. you see that everything was taken completely out of context and these two young men did nothing wrong other than possibly be in the wrong place at the wrong time. And you know in in Sandman's case they the video that was released was specifically edited mm-hmm. to make him look bad. Right. So that was intentional. Right. To be honest, it was because he had a maga hat on. Yep. They could twist it to do anything, you know, because he had a maga hat on. But in both of those situations that are, you know, they're touchy subjects right now, but these are young men who were assassinated by the court of public opinion and the mob follows the opinion. And it's like, once you hear that, you know, 
uh, Kyle Rittenhouse is a, what were they saying about him? He was a racist and he was a white supremacist who was, you know, they, all of these really nasty yeah. things they said about him that were simply not true. And but yet, because you heard it on the media, it, it makes it true. And therefore, there's and he can't get into college now. It's like the college that he was accepted into has turned him down. And it's basically the same story of, you know, where Peter can't get into MIT and his friends can't get into MIT because they know him. Yeah. And it's like it's a real story that's very similar. It's like they get assassinated in the court of public opinion and it ruins their lives. And they're young men who have their whole lives in front of them. And and now, you know, what do they do? Do they make the world forget them? I know that Kyle Rittenhouse has actually come out publicly about changing his name and so that he can, you know, just put all of this behind him and move on with his life. He didn't mm-hmm. want to be dragged into the, into public. That was not ever his, his desire. So it's like, that was kind of what Peter was like. Can I change my name? You know, can, can people forget about me? <laughs> you know, can I get away from this? Now in scripture, it says, I was actually kind of surprised. I found at least three distinct things having to do with the court of public opinion in the Bible. Now, granted, they didn't call it that back in Bible days, but <laughs> two of them are in the Old Testament. So the, the first one is part of the Levitical law. It's in Exodus. 23, 1 through 3 says, you must not spread a false report. Do not join the wicked to be a malicious witness. You must not follow a crowd in wrongdoing. Do not testify in a lawsuit and go along with the crowd to pervert justice. Do not show favoritism to a poor person in his lawsuit. So this is just part of, you know, the common sense part of the law that God gave the people of Israel. And it's like, don't go spreading false reports. Don't just yep. join the crowd when, you know, they're all saying, you know, this happened and we're going to like, you know, it, it's almost kind of like the whole lynching mobs of the past. You know, it's like you get a bu- enough people upset about something and then you just follow along and let them. The mob mentality. Yeah, the mob mentality. Yeah. And, and it's so wrong. And I mean, it, it's spoken against here in no uncertain language. I mean, it's it's very obvious what they're saying there. And then in 1 Samuel 15, there's an incidence where King Saul offers a sacrifice. And they're on the brink of war. He's got his army all there. And he's waiting for Samuel to come. And Samuel keeps being delayed. And Saul's concerned that he's going to start losing his army, you know, that their opinion of him is going to fail because they haven't moved or done anything. And so he offers a sacrifice to the Lord. And right after he finishes, Samuel comes. And, and of course, his excuse is, you know, hey, I, I know I'm wrong, but I was, I feared the people were going to leave me, you know, that he, he feared public opinion. And so he was making decisions as a leader based on what he was concerned about, what the mob thinks, you know, the crowd. And yeah. so I think that's a, you know, a concern for leadership as well is that, yes, you need to take into account those under your leadership and what they think, but you don't let their thoughts and feelings drive you to make decisions that are unwise because you're the leader, you know, <laughs> you're like Dr. Yeah. Strange, you're the adult <laughs> in the room. Yeah. And then the last one I found where a mob kind of makes a decision for a leader is in Jesus's trial. You know, the pilot asks the people, <laughs> what do you want me to do with this man? You know, Hey, you know, I'm allowed to release somebody, you know, I'm, a, I'm allowed to release a political prisoner. You want me to release this Jesus? You know, and they were like, no, 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 give us Barabbas. And I would imagine there's probably a few in the crowd who didn't want Barabbas. 
you know, but yeah. hey, this was the crowd mentality. This was the mob mentality that was going on. So yeah, we'll take Barabbas over Jesus. Yeah. Well, you know, if they want to release Barabbas, they must know something that I don't. Yeah, right. let's go ahead and release Barabbas. Yeah. So, yeah, there's there's definite harm in following the crowd. And I, I think that that's even scriptural, you know, to some extent. And, you know, Jesus told us himself that, you know, that the way that leads to destruction is wide and everybody's on it. So let's not follow mm-hmm. the crowd. We want to go that, you know, the narrow, twisty path to, to Jesus. This is the, the path we're supposed to be taking. Not the one that all the crowd is on. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No kidding. Yeah. And then the other really interesting thing that I think really ties into current culture is, you know, JJ reported, he said, yeah, I have conclusive proof. And his conclusive mm-hmm. proof turned out to be a carefully edited video, which I don't think was ever actually brought brought out. You know, they didn't have the evidence. Yeah, they, they played snippets of it in the very beginning, but that was it. Yeah. So his conclusive proof wasn't really proof. And I think that that is something that we have to be cautious of as Christians in this day and age, especially following the crowd, especially when the crowd is being incited by video, pictures, words taken out of context, all of those things. We just have to be so careful because there's so many lies in the world and we can't be so easily led astray. We have to not be gullible. You know, it's like, don't yep. don't believe it just because somebody says it. Research it. Be like the Bereans and, and, you know, dig carefully into things. Don't just believe it because somebody said it. And then we have like the MIT person who changes her mind about Peter because she sees him in action with her own eyes. And that that is the evidence that we can trust. It's like not doctored video, not words taken out of context. We have to be careful that we are looking at things in their proper context and, and making our decisions based on real things and not what twisted lies that people are giving us. Yeah. You know, I did want to point out one thing. And when they're in the diner uh, or the coffee shop or the donut shop or whatever it actually is, and I think Ned reads, in light of recent controversy, we're unable to consider your application at this time. I'm not so sure that MIT was wrong to have done that. From a practical standpoint, they have a responsibility not only to these three people, to MJ, Ned, and Peter, but they have a responsibility to all the rest of the people attending the school. And... If they have some reason to think that bringing these three people to MIT might not just endanger the other students in the school, but impact their ability to learn, then I think they may have been right to to hold off on the consideration that the controversy was going to impact, you know, even if it is an appearance of impropriety mm-hmm. and not an actual one. You know, when my wife and I are, are watching TV – just the other day, we were watching the new Magnum P.I., and one of the things he does in that series is he'll break into a house at the you know drop of a pin and go rummaging around the house of somebody they're suspecting. And we were like, you know, I don't want to live in Honolulu if, if this is how loose and fast they are with, with breaking and entering. And it, it's sort of like, you didn't want to live in the town with Jessica Fletcher because somebody died once a week. <laughs> <laughs> from from murder. Yeah. 
And let's face it, it, Peter was talking on the roof scene. There, He was talking about, well, they have crime in Boston, right? I can go fight, fight crime in Boston. If he went to Boston and started fighting crime, doesn't that mean all that destruction would start happening there? Yeah. Of course, we live. This, this is the MCU universe. There's destruction happening in little towns off the beaten path, you know, where yeah. the, the Scarlet Witch decides to take up residence. So. <laughs> <laughs> An entire town is engulfed. Yeah. <laughs> There's no uh, safe place in, this, in the MCU. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. I just wanted to mention that if they were thinking about it carefully, they might still come to the same conclusion. Peter Parker's desire to be the hero and his heroic actions may not be enough to sway the mind of the, the considerate council member. You mm-hmm. know? Right. So – uh, so, and then just as to wrap all that up, I, I wanted to go back into, you know, once again, the Le- Levitical law, one witness cannot establish any iniquity or sin against a person, whatever that person has done, a fact must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. That's Deuteronomy 915. I think that's a good reminder. It's like, just don't jump on things so quickly. Yeah. Make sure there's a enough witnesses and, you know, pay attention to the court trials. You know, it's like I wasn't able to follow the Kyle Rittenhouse trial as, as closely as I would have liked, but I heard enough of the testimony to wonder why this had even gone to trial, to be honest. I don't, yeah, I, I don't think yeah. it was something that should have even gone to trial They're, They just, the prosecution had nothing, absolutely nothing, but pay attention to the court of law, not the court of public opinion. See what is mm-hmm. actually the evidence of cases and, and, and just, don't be swayed. That's that's all I got to say. Yeah. So one of the things that I wanted to talk about, there's a scene where Peter is fixing the chip on the back of Doc Ock's neck. Uh-huh. And they explain that the chip has made it so that Doc Ock does what the AI and the arms wants to do, not what he wants to do. So basically, Dr. Octavius has been taken over by the artificial intelligence of the arms which was, that he's wearing. was the point in the movie. I mean, if you go back and watch yep. the movie, he was a really nice guy and a really moral scientist. And then that chip got broken and exactly, and he lost control of the AI. Yeah. So there, there's a scene where they have taken control of Doc Ock's arms and they're raising him up so that Peter can change out the chip. And he was objecting in such a way that it felt uncomfortably close to, like, a rape scene. Yeah. Yeah. And that really made me question whether or not Peter was right to be doing what he was doing, particularly because he didn't know anything about Octavius before – that's right, because he hadn't met the other Peter the Parker. Yeah, he hadn't met the other Peter exactly. Parker who could explain. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this was a comment that came from one of our listeners, actually, my former co-host of this very podcast, uh, Daniel. He mentioned in Daniel, who's this Daniel guy? <laughs> I asked for input on this movie, and he was really excited. He actually got to see the movie before we recorded. <laughs> <laughs> But he made the comment, he says, No Way Home was a lot of fun, but a friend and I were talking about how movies are pushing the idea that good guys don't kill. Obviously, good guys don't murder, but it seems like movies are now wanting people to think that even the justified taking 
of a life for protection or justice is wrong and that people should instead be fixed. This fix is not coming from repentance and redemption, but from treatment. As if evil mm-hmm. behavior is something that can be treated with science, it's like the world no longer sees good versus evil, but moral versus anti-moral. And so we're going to use that kind of as the, I guess, the launching point for our next yeah. discussion, because as you said with Octavius, it's like Peter was fixing him. He was making him better because basically he finds out that all of these villains who know who Peter Parker is were all killed in their universes. They all died. Right. And so he's thinking, I can't just send them back. They're going to die. So being the the moral person that he is, he thinks he's going to save them. And so he's going to fix them. And mm. it, it's an interesting role. And I'm, I'm not sure I completely agree with Daniel on the angle that he's taking on this, because I don't think good guys, I, I think good guys don't kill. I, I think that is a good starting point for a discussion on vigilantes because vigilantes mm-hmm. they don't follow the proper mode of justice. It's no, you know, innocent until proven guilty. We're going to apprehend a suspect and put him on trial for his wrongdoing. And then if he is convicted of that wrongdoing, then he is sentenced to punishment based on his wrongdoing. Uh, vigilantes right. just like, Oh, they're, they're bad guys. Let's kill them. Yeah. Yeah, it goes back to that judge, jury, and executioner right, thing, right? Right, yeah. And and so I don't actually mind my vigilantes not being murderers. I mean, I'm sorry, I just... I, <laughs> and in fact, that was the, the shade of difference between the Daredevil movie that came out in the 90s and the Daredevil TV show that I love so much with Charlie Cox. Is, oh, yeah. Is that yeah. Daredevil is not just like offing these people. You know, oh, they're bad guys. They they managed to slip through the court of law. And now I'm going to, you know, give them their just punishments, which was what the daredevil was in the movie uh, and kind of mm-hmm. what the Punisher was, his, you know, a, other character that, that appeared in the daredevil series. Yeah. Yeah. That's not the kind of vigilante justice that we should be wanting from these characters. Yeah. You, you look at the role that Spider-Man and many of the other heroes are filling and Spider-Man specifically is stopping wrongdoing and apprehending them and then literally turning them over to proper authorities. Right. I mean, the image that you have is all the bad guys webbed together in a, uh, you know, <laughs> yeah. in, in a cocoon hanging <laughs> yeah. down with a note, with a note on it, you know, your friendly neighborhood Spider-Man. That's not what a vigilante is. Yeah, and and you know the interesting thing about that is that he doesn't present any of the evidence of their wrongdoing. With he just captures them and gives them to the police. And what are the police going to do? They're just going to let them go. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> there is that minor legal thing. Yeah. Um, maybe, maybe they're just going to confess. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know the the interesting thing about you know Peter approaching each of these five villains that need to be fixed is that in their and and I don't think he actually even gets the idea about this until he has this discussion with the Green Goblin and, you know, the alter ego um, of, mm-hmm. you know, it's like, I, I'm lost. I need help. You know, I can I, I don't know where my son is. My, my somebody's living in my apartment. I think that's where he starts to get the the idea of seeing these people as people. They're villains and he captured them all. And now he's thinking, oh, wait a minute wait a minute, these guys are people. They have real lives. 
And, and I don't have a problem with him seeing them as needing to be fixed. My problem with this movie is that they make it look like evildoers can find redemption through a scientific fix. That is the problem that I have. Not that Peter Parker wants to fix them. I don't think that's wrong that Peter Parker wants to fix Mm. them. I don't think that's the wrong thing. It's that they make them fixable through a scientific intervention. Because when people are bad, they're bad for reason. It's because they're sinners. And you can't fix sin with science. And, you know, that's actually where where I differ, too. But only in the context of this movie specifically does my difference matter. Because all five of the villains were by all accounts, good people mm-hmm. before they came under the sway of whatever it is, you know, that, that turned them. Right. Uh, Electro and Sandman. And Connors. Yeah. They even uh, joke about Electro it. and Sandman yeah. specifically, they were accidents. Yes. Where they, Electro fell into an experimental vat of electric ears and Sandman fell into a, a collider. Right. A, and they joke about collider. that in the movie, which is funny. Be careful where you fall. <laughs> Connors and Goblin both were playing. They with, both with took things. specific action, right? Yep, and they made changes to themselves. They were still kind of accidents, though, because, like with Doctor Connors, he was trying to regrow his arm. He didn't know he was going to turn into yeah. a lizard. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Exactly. I want to stress: this is fictional. Bad, evil people are evil in real in real life. <laughs> All have sinned. But the mechanism of the evil in the framework of this story is – and the reason it's important to me is because it hinges the question that I started this discussion with, whether or not it was a violation. To be uh, fixed. A very personal violation Mm -hmm. hinges on whether or not they had the – capacity to know that they needed to be fixed well i mean you, green it's like goblin. when somebody pleads insanity well green goblin it speaks to that because he's like do, do you think i was going to let you take this power away from me you know yeah this was who they were and fixing them may put them back to their better selves but that doesn't necessarily i guess my take on this is accidents made them villains right so an accident made peter parker spider-man Mm-hmm. I mean, he he could use that for bad. I mean, in in fact, they actually explore that in the Tobey Maguire Spider Man because remember he yeah, and they mention it. He was like, you know, I I could use this to make money. I could you know go you know do the whole world of wrestling you know thing and turn my back on wrongdoing because it doesn't bother me. It's not it you know they haven't harmed me. So yeah, I mean, an accident made Peter Parker Spider Man. He could have turned into a villain, but he didn't. So these accidents that make these quote unquote good men mm-hmm. into villains and that you just have to fix whatever the accident did to them to make them back into good men. I, I, I'm kind of like, I, I'm, I'm not entirely sure that that is a good excuse. It's almost kind of smacks of the devil made me do it. You know, it's like, yeah, it, it's, it's an it's- excuse. When when you look at Octavius specifically, though, yeah, he was being controlled by the AI of his arms. So, again, in the framework of the movie, it seems <laughs> valid to me. Yeah. And he comes to the rescue. 
He does. Uh, do you remember the movie regarding Henry? Yes. Where he changed. Harrison Ford. Yeah, he changes personalities because of an accident into his head. Yeah. But, yeah. Yeah, he was shot He was shot in the head in mm-hmm. a convenience store robbery, if I remember correctly. And he goes through this Doesn't know drastic his personality yeah. change. Yeah. yeah. He literally has to relearn everything. When I first saw that movie back in the uh, 90s, early 90s, I want to say. It got me wondering about good and evil in the sense of a person's personality and how eternally it worked out. But that eventually actually led me to the realization that is the core of evangelicalism. And that's we're all evil. Yeah. The natural man. Outside of the salvation of Christ. Yeah, exactly. The natural man is a sinner. And that is our our natural propensity is to be evil and to be bad and to sin and to uh, you speak of regarding Henry. I actually know of, of someone who that happened to in real life, a pastor and a father and somebody who was, you know, everybody looked up to as a, as a spiritual father kind of instance. Mm-hmm. And he got a brain disease that literally rotted his brain inside his head. And towards the mm. end of his life, he was, swearing at people and abusive and to himself and others it just completely a different person of almost an evil person and when you see that happen to somebody it's like god you know what happened this was this was a godly man and when his brain deteriorated inside his skull he was not a godly man anymore he wasn't the same person yeah. anymore so I see your point on that. We see that with the adult dementia patients mm-hmm. all the time. Yeah. They become, in many cases, violent, mm-hmm. but they often become abusive, mm-hmm. too. Yeah. That's the natural man, unfortunately. <laughs> and and that's the effect of, of the, the corruption of the fall. Right. On the image of God that is our current bodies. Right. So, you know, in the case of... Octavia specifically, I think Peter was justified like an insanity defense. You know, he. I mean, Green Goblin was very much the same way. I mean, it's like. Yeah. He literally was two people inside the body and and Norman Osborn had no clue what was going on when the other was in control. But Electro, Connor, the lizard guy and Sandman. There wasn't any indication that their personality was significantly different before their accidents. Mm-hmm. They were more along the lines of power corrupts, absolute power corrupts, absolutely. Yeah. Which is sort of like the mirror image of with great power comes great responsibility. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And if I remember correctly, that mirror image was a big part of the other Spider-Man movies. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's, Spider-Man has always had villains that that kind of can go either way. In in the notes here, I brought up the one villain that we do see sort of in the mm-hmm. credits, Venom. But yeah. the Venom that was in the Tobey Maguire movies was not the Venom that we see in the credits. It's the new Venom from the the Sony right. Sony universe. But Venom is the one character from the Tobey Maguire movies who did know Peter Parker's identity 
but didn't show up in this, you know, universal iteration, multiverse iteration. Right. Number one, he didn't die. So I think that they were kind of holding it to the villains that Spider-Man had killed. Yeah, they were cherry picking. They were cherry picking, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But Venom did know Peter Parker's identity. And the interesting thing about the Venom character, especially if you kind of not just delve from the movies, but from the comic books as well, is that he is only a villain in as much as he's more, he's really more of a vigilante than a villain. Mm-hmm. And he's really only a villain in his attitude towards Spider-Man because the symbiont hates Peter Parker because Peter Parker rejected it. So mm-hmm. Eddie Brock, who is a bit of an, an amoral character in that he did something wrong, but it was not like on the, you know, evil villain, you know. Yeah. Yeah. He would, he would small time, small time crook. Right. He takes on Venom and he gets a heart, an actual mission to help the homeless and the downtrodden. And that is the position of a vigilante. That's really what Venom does is he goes around and he protects the homeless. And the only reason that he can prevent himself from being a villain in the true instance, because he hates Spider-Man so much is to move to the West coast so that he's direct, got a whole continent between him and Spider-Man so that they never interact. But he's actually kind of a good guy in quotes. (laughs) <laughs> and, and and so I guess my point is, do these accidents make the villains by changing their character or does it inflate a part of their character that's already there? Yeah. So, you know, Spider-Man becomes a more moral person. Eddie Brock, small town crook, becomes the protector of mm-hmm. the downtrodden. Yeah, It's just not it's not a one size fits all. Yeah. Answer, though. Yeah. So I don't know. I I think it kind of does boil down to that with great power comes great responsibility. God gives us talents and gifts and how we use right. those talents and gifts, regardless of whether we, you know, they're we're bitten by a radioactive spider or we fall into a super collider or a vat of electric eels or whatever it is <laughs> that gives us these gifts. We shouldn't let them twist us into something that we're not. And right. That is the case for those of us who are Christians. We're supposed to let go and let God, you know, it's like, mm-hmm. it's not what we do. It's what God does through us. And so if we become more selfish with our talents and, and the gifts and the abilities that God gave us, or do we do God's will with those gifts and talents? Do we hide them in the ground or do we use them if we want to go to the parable of the talents? But in the end, and I think that's a valuable discussion, I do think we do need to deal with the thing that is like the glaring elephant in the room for this movie is, do we fix wrongdoing through human means or do we apply the real fix to a spiritual problem? I get what you're saying, you know, like the, the regarding Henry and the and the gentleman I know who, you know, got the brain disease. It's like... Yeah. Yeah. There are instances where people do wrong for physical reasons. You know, they're they're mentally insane or they're mm-hmm. mentally incompetent. We give children a break because they haven't learned maturity yet. They haven't matured to know they haven't been trained to share, <laughs> you know, to yeah. to not yeah. be selfish, to, to all these things that we count as as uh, character development. 
But in the end, we cannot fix a spiritual problem with science, which is what we see going on in this movie. And what uh, Jesus say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you know me, you also know my Father from now on. You do know him and have seen him through me. So that's uh, John 14, 5 through 7. These these villains that Peter was was fixing, he was changing their fate. In fact, Dr. Strange had a couple of instances where he spoke to this. He was like in the grand calculus of the multi-universe or the multiverse, which I guess is you, you could apply the label God to that, you know? <laughs> mm-hmm. Their sacrifices mean infinitely more than their lives. Or in another place, he says, it's their fate. You can't change that any more than you can change who they are. He was speaking to, you know, who these people existed in their multiverses. That they live their lives, they 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 sacrifice their lives to their evil, and that was their fate. It is each of our fate as human beings. It is each of our fate to die in our sin. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. So it is our fate. It is our in the grand calculus of the universe under the judgment of God. Our ultimate fate is death because we are all sinners. Mm-hmm. And the only thing that can fix that spiritual condition is, is Christ. It's Jesus Christ. That's the only thing that fixes yeah. it. Amen. <laughs> hey, do I um, get off my soapbox now? No, this is my soapbox. <laughs> <laughs> yep, exactly. And then there's just a little piece of that is to kind of conclude this theme. There is that aspect of vengeance in this movie because. Green Goblin kills Aunt May. And yeah. we know from, you know, the, the origin story of Spider-Man, he always loses somebody he loves. And as I mentioned earlier in our initial reactions, that was the gaping hole that I always found in this iteration of Spider-Man. He was just a happy, lucky high school student. He hadn't lost anything. He hadn't become Spider-Man through loss. And in this instance, he gets counseled by other Spider-Men who'd already gone through the loss. And they both told him, vengeance is wrong. Vengeance is not going to get you what you think you want. And we've gone down that path already. We can we can tell you from experience it isn't going to fix the hurt. It isn't going to heal the pain. So this is, you know, the final reminder, Romans 12, 19 through 21, friends, do not avenge yourselves. Instead, leave room for God's wrath because it is written, vengeance belongs to me. I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For in so doing, you will be heaping fiery coals in his head. Do not be conquered by evil, but conquer evil with good. And I think, to be honest, in you know this initial discussion of whether Peter should be allowed to try and fix bad guys instead of mm-hmm. heap you know vengeance on them, I think that was you know the the Christian reaction. This was the the moral reaction to seeing bad people is to see them as people who need redemption, who need to be yeah. saved. Now he went about it the wrong way, but this was this wasn't a Christian movie. So what do we expect? Yeah. <laughs> you know, and that's why and that's why we discuss it. Right. That's exactly that's why we discuss it. So we know that that Peter's reaction, you know. To try and fix them through science, it, it it probably wasn't the best way to handle it. But in the end, he did fix 
you know, these five yeah. villains, they all found their redemption through the help of the other two Spider-Men. Mm-hmm. So, you know, for what it's worth, that is that is the the moral reaction. When we see people who are lost yeah. in sin, not to heap judgment on them for being bad and being evil because we're all sinners. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. Our initial reaction should be these people need our help. And and Peter was he was trying to do what was right even in the face of very stiff opposition yeah. from Stephen Strange. Right. And Strange was telling him, I mean, straight out, like with the, the quotes from earlier, it's their fate. Yeah. You can't change it. Yeah. And Peter was refusing to accept that. And I think Peter was doing what he thought was the right thing. Mm -hmm. And I think, and I think was the right thing too, for that matter. And the fact that he persisted in doing the right thing, even in the face of authoritative opposition was important, Mm -hmm. especially given the fact that Peter is a child. Right. Granted, he's a child old enough to enlist in the armed forces. (laughs) Just barely. Well, I guess he was only seven. He, yeah. yeah, he was 17. Right. Well, my wife enlisted when she was 17. So, but he was still going against the authority who was in Infinity Wars and then later in Endgame. He was one of the leaders of all those heroes. Right. So, you know, his opposition and desire to do the right thing no matter what i think was admirable and we and remember we saw him at the beginning of uh, far from home trying to you know hey listen i'm just a kid i don't want to be the lead avenger yeah you know it's like exactly quit putting this responsibility on me i'm just a kid so he realized where he was in all of this now as we move on, we've got just a few little quick little things that we want to skate over. One of the things, as we were talking about Dr. Strange here in, in opposition to Peter, I thought it was really interesting that when it came on into a showdown between them, that Peter was able to combat Dr. Strange's magic with science and math. Mm-hmm. I just thought that was kind of, you know, just geek out on that for a minute. It's like... <laughs> Strange, you know, pushes his soul out of his body uh, the same way that that he was schooled by, what was her name? The uh, Ancient One. Yeah, the Ancient One. Yeah. Yep. And Peter swims back and gets back in his body. And he controls his body. Right, well, even though he's out of it. Yeah. Yeah. Which uh, Strange says, you, you shouldn't be, shouldn't able, be to- able to do that. <laughs> yeah. And then when he gets into the... he. Uh, Strange obviously takes him into the mirror dimension where he can control him a little better. And Peter's like, oh, look, this is math. This is so cool. <laughs> you know, and then he's able to actually use the mirror dimension against Strange, which is, you know, I, I'm sorry. It just geeks rule, right? You know? <laughs> yeah. What was what was he said? This has got to be the coolest thing that's ever happened to me, but don't, don't do, do it again. again. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, I was actually thinking about that because uh, it goes back to the end credit scene at the end of Shang-Chi mm-hmm. where Bruce Banner and, and Captain Marvel are discussing the rings with Wong and Shang-Chi and they're talking about it as a level of technology that they've never seen before. And I think the whole MCU is leaning towards even Strange's magic, magic and science. Yeah. And Scarlet Witch's um, chaos magic. It's all going to be just different applications of 
science that's beyond understanding. Right. Which, you know, it, that's the humanistic p- perspective anyway. There's exactly. No, that's what we expect. <laughs> there's no true si- supernatural. So, yeah. And the other little quick little thing that I wanted to talk about before we wrap is May's amorality. Mm-hmm. She's a very interesting character. You know, our concept of Aunt May is the the kind little old lady, you know, and, and then yeah. they, they kind of twisted that with, you know, the hot aunt, you know, mm-hmm. the smoking hot aunt who, you know. Tony Stark and Marissa, and, and Marissa Tomei, right? Yeah, Tomei. Yeah. yeah, Melissa Tomei plays May as a very amoral character, even though she has a moral position in this movie. She's a very amoral character. In fact, she came out publicly and said she wanted to portray the character as bisexual. She requested to play the character as bisexual, mm. and they wouldn't let her do it. She wanted to have a girlfriend in this movie. Yeah, she doesn't seem to have any of the the standard parental <laughs> yeah inhibitions you know yeah it's like how did peter get to be so moral with an aunt like that but you know exactly so she has this summer fling with happy that's the way she she describes it and happy actually likes her he wants to make a, a, a you know a good relationship with her committed relationship yeah yeah a committed relationship with her and she's just like you know it was a fling it's we flung it's done and when she catches Peter and MJ in a state of undress, she doesn't seem phased by it. You know, now, <laughs> granted, it was very innocent at the time. He was taking his suit off and he had his gibbies on underneath. But mm-hmm. in all of the movies, they kind of present her as being the moral voice of reason for Peter. But at the same time, she doesn't do a very good job of it. And so I yeah. I just wanted to, to, you know, discuss it from that point of view is like, she obviously cares about people. She's running this charity for the homeless and displaced. Um, the Green Goblin actually mocks her for her holy mission and calls Peter weak because he is upholding her values. You know, all of this. It, it, it's like they want to divorce certain moral positions from other moral positions. Yeah. And say, you can still be a good person even if you believe in sleeping around or even if you you know, embrace bisexuality right? or uh, anything like that. And, and I think that's a mission that we see coming out of, of Hollywood now. Especially the MCU. <laughs> they want to divorce morality from the natural law. Right. And progressives know that's going to take a lot of work because the natural law is part of that law that God has written on our heart. Right. Yeah. And God willing, they'll fail. Right. Yeah, But I think what we're seeing here is that effort in motion. I think it's interesting in 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 5, you know, Paul's cautioning Timothy about, you know, what it's going to be like in, you know, the last days, the hard days that are going to come. And I think this, you know, sort of speaks to this because regardless of where you are in your eschatology, we are living in the last days because they're the days after Christ and before his return. So we're regardless of where we fall in those last days, we are in the last days. Yeah. Millennial, pre-millennial, post-millennial, whatever it is. We are still in the last days. So in 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 5, it says, But know this, hard times will come in the last days, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, proud, demeaning, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, without love for what is good, traitors, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure, rather than lovers of God, 
holding to the form of godliness, but denying its power. Avoid these people. That's getting real. Wow, Paul, don't hold back, yeah. man. <laughs> it's really hard to avoid these people nowadays, but... Yeah, no kidding. Which is why I left Facebook. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah, so, you know, that, for what it's worth, this is the the form of godliness that our culture is taking. And we have to be yep. careful that we don't Absolutely. fall prey to that. Yeah. So there was one other mini theme that I wanted to discuss while we wrap up here. Yeah. MJ has a saying in the movie, if you expect disappointment, then you can never really get disappointed. And that reminded me of a saying that I grew up with and I used in the army, hope for the best, but prepare for the worst, which in preparation for this episode, I actually did a little research on it. turns out that it goes back to the 16th century, hmm. which I was surprised. It, it shows up in Shakespeare. I've always kind of thought of it like li- live – what, what do they say? Live like, live like every day is your last, but plan as if you're going to live forever or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I hadn't heard that one. Yeah. It struck me as coming back to a, a theme that we encounter frequently in secular media, and that's being content with your station while still pursuing your dreams. Mm-hmm. And it reminded me that no matter what we plan – and we do. We we are to plan. We are to pursue those dreams. We're, we're to work towards things in our lives. Everything that happens is, is God's. Proverbs 16, 9, uh, a person's heart plans his way, but the Lord determines his steps. And Philippians 4, 6 or 7, don't worry about anything, but in everything, through prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Jesus Christ. And those serve to remind me that even when you're disappointed, you can bank, you can be assured of the sovereignty of God right, and his purpose. Right. And I am trying to avoid using Romans 8.28 here <laughs> because I overuse that one. It's all part of the Bible. Even when we're disappointed – we can be certain that what has happened is God's will. I think that really speaks to where we are as a culture, as a Christian culture in today's world. It's like, it seems like every day brings a new disappointment, whether you're you're losing your family or losing liberties, losing freedoms, losing fellowship. Your candidate loses an election. Yeah, yeah. losing fellowship in your church. There are a lot of disappointments in this life, and I think that having that reassurance, that comfort, that to know that God is ultimately in control of it all. Nothing catches him by surprise. And, yeah. you know, it's something as Christians that we can take comfort in, and we should be taking comfort in. As we've mentioned in previous episodes, we shouldn't be living in fear. That fear should not be driving any decision that we make, because ultimately God is in control. And the the fear should just not take hold of us. Wake up in the morning and remind yourself every morning, God is in control. I don't need to be afraid of this. God didn't guarantee I would be safe, that I would live a happy life, that my loved ones would not die painful diseases, that my church Mm -hmm. wouldn't uh, fall apart due to infighting and all the horrible things that happen when you put fallen human individuals together in community. But God is still ultimately in control, and we don't have to live in fear because of that. And so, yeah, yeah, I mean, exactly. Yeah. 
maybe we expect disappointment. Maybe we, we take comfort in knowing that in this world that we live in, we're always going to be disappointed, but our eyes are fixed on eternity where our, all of our expectations will be met more. So exactly. Ah, praise God for that. Well, we thank you so much for listening to our podcast again. I want to thank our supporters right off the bat. Uh, the, we have six people who continue to give a, give to us in Patreon. Isaiah Santiano, Greg Hardy, Stephen Brown II, David Lefton, and Peter Chapman are our generous supporters who give $5 or more a month. And so they get mentioned in every episode. You too can support this podcast. You can do so by going to patreon.com slash are you just watching? Or you can go to PayPal, PayPal me slash AYJW to give to us through PayPal. I have been exploring some other options. So if anybody has any ways they would prefer to give to us, please let us know and we can explore other options for that as well. We just really appreciate the support that keeps us doing what we're doing. Yes. You can share feedback on this. The show notes for this episode will be at areyoujustwatching.com slash 124. We're, we're reaching the Woo-hoo. quarter mark uh, here in our second 100, which is pretty cool. You can call us at 513-818-2959 and leave a voicemail. You can email feedback at areyoujustwatching.com. And we strongly encourage you to come and join us in our Discord server. You can get to that by going to areyoujustwatching.com slash Discord. Or you can join us in Facebook. Tim is not there at all anymore, and I am pretty much only there briefly every so often. Um, but you can mm. still join the the group. There are others in the community other than us. So if you want to talk to other like-minded people in our Facebook group, you can join that at areyoujustwatching.com slash community. That will take you directly to the group. We do want to, you to subscribe, rate, and review our podcast wherever you get podcasts. Not just Apple anymore. There's and all kinds so of places. So many sources. Yeah, there's so many sources for podcasts now. Just, you know, stay in touch with us. We love hearing from our listeners. I don't know that we have tagged what we're going to do in February. We better get on that quickly because February is a very short month. Yeah. But yeah, we will let you know if you're following us in the various places I just said. We will give you a heads up. And we love having you come and join us while we record. We had somebody in the chat today listening in. And so I'll give him a call out uh, to John Wilkinson, who was live chatting us while we recorded and we appreciated having him on board and we'd love to hear from you as well. We try to post in our group, both in discord and in Facebook when we will be recording to give you a little bit of a heads up and we'd love to have you join us for these sessions. So thank you for listening to this very long episode. I I can already tell you that we enjoyed seeing the movie and there was so much more we could have talked about, but that's where Hmm. our social media you know, the Discord chat comes in, so come come chat movies yep. with us. Thank you so much for listening. I'm E. Franklin. I'm Tim Martin. And, and don't, don't just watch. watch. The Christian Podcast Community is a cohesive group of like-minded Christian podcasters proclaiming the truths of Christ with expertise and passion in the areas of theology, church history, Christian living, evangelism, apologetics, parenting, homeschooling, sermons, and much, much more. So check us out at ChristianPodcastCommunity.org. One stop for all your favorite Christian podcasts. ChristianPodcastCommunity.org.